Thanks for joining Cornerstone for our message of the week. We hope you'll be inspired and encouraged. To connect with our church family and to watch our services live, download our app today by texting Sparks Will Fly as one word, app to 77977. That's Sparks Will Fly app to 77977 or by visiting us online at sparkswillfly.cc. You in 1 John chapter 4. Let's look at verse 16. I'm reading out the Passion Translation. If you ain't got it, you need to get it. Bottom line, okay? Um, He's got Genesis done. You got Genesis in? I saw it on his thing where he got it now. All right, be hunting it down. All right, y'all ready? Verse 16, 1 John chapter 4. We have come into an intimate expression with God's love. And we trust in the love he has for us. I don't know how many book readers we got in here, but I've been reading uh, some books by Brennan Manning, Catholic guy, uh, Ruthless Trust. It's an unbelievable book. Um, and he starts out in that book, and he, he says that uh, he goes to one of the greatest mentors that he had had the privilege of being under, and he said that I just need more insight into the faith. I just need, if you could just help me get more insight into the faith. And he looks Brennan in the eye, and he says, you don't need any more insight into the faith. You have enough insight into faith to last you for 300 years. What you need is to trust what you already have. Listen to me. There's probably nobody sitting in this room, maybe a couple of people, that you really need any more deeper revelation. What we need is to trust what we already know. John is writing, this is at the end. He's writing looking back, and he's writing to his spiritual children. And he says, we've come in an intimate expression with God's love. And we trust in the love he has for us. We trust in the love we have for us. Now, Brennan Manning says this, how do we know that a man, how do we know that a man trusts? He said, it's simply, let me live with him for a month and I'll tell you if he trusts. The main thing that I look for is his gratitude. Come on, y'all. We're thankful. We are the richest people on the face of this planet. If you drove here tonight, whether it was held together by Christian bumper stickers or whatever, with a roof over your head, we got to be a thankful people and a grateful people. We trust in the love that he has for us. God is love. Those who are living in love are living in God, and God lives through them. By living in God... Love has been brought to its full expression in us so that we may fiercely face the day of judgment. Fearlessly face the day of judgment. Because all that Jesus now is, so are we in this world. Look at this. Love never brings fear. Love never brings fear. For fear is always related to punishment. But love's perfection drives the fear of punishment far from our hearts. My God, I'm trying to... I I don't know how all this is going to go. All I can tell you is, man, I've been tore up today. Love never brings fear, for fear fear is always related to punishment. But love's perfection drives the fear of punishment far from our hearts. Whoever walks constantly afraid of punishment, look at this, has not reached love's perfection. Let's look at that again. Whoever walks constantly afraid of punishment has not reached love's perfection. Our love for others is our grateful response to the love God first demonstrated to us. Now, I want to read something to you. And this is in a room of about 200 leaders from all over the globe. 
this is leaders, uh, just whatever. This is Danny Silk talking, so I just want to read you something, okay? Let's go right here. Over the last few sessions, I begin, we've explored the idea that a culture of honor is a culture of love and a culture of family. This means that it is also a culture of vulnerability. We are choosing to position ourselves in relationships where our lives can be powerfully impacted by the choices of other people, and they can be impacted by our choices. And sometimes the impact of those choices is extremely painful. This is why most of the world sacrifices genuine love and community for the sake of self-protection. But in a culture of honor in a family, we sacrifice self-protection to pursue connection when it's been damaged or destroyed by someone's poor choice. Listen to this. A few heads nodded around the room, but most of the faces looking at me were sober, attentive. Everyone seemed to the, seemed to the sense that we were wading out into weighty waters. The best way to show you what this honor, love, and vulnerability looks like, I continued, is with a story. A story about one of our leaders who made a painful choice that affected everyone in our environment. One day in 2009, I began, Dan Farley, one of our senior leaders, and I were called into a meeting with one of our ministry school interns. This intern explained to us that she had been living with one of the school pastors and his family for a year, and that over the previous several and over the previous the previous several months, she had been she had become involved in an affair with him. On cue, a taunt silence filled the room, a silence that remained as I went on with the story. Dan and I wasted no time in calling a meeting to confront the pastor in question. He admitted that everything, he writes his name here, he admitted that everything she told us was the truth. He seemed to be shocked by his own confession. It was clearly the first time he had said out loud what he had actually been doing. Such confessions are always heartbreaking to hear, but this one especially saddened because I know this man well. In fact, I had known Ben since he was a boy growing up in my hometown of Weaverville, California. He and his wife Heather and their three children were beloved members of our Bethel community. Ben had risen steadily through the ranks of Bethel's staff to the point where he had entrusted him with the direct pastoral care of 70 first-year students and oversight then of 700-member first-year class. His sphere of influence, including the school, church, and even our extended network, extended our church network, his choice to violate his marriage covenant also violated his covenants with God and the people of God who trusted him as a leader. When I reached this point in the story, Ben's confession, I stopped and asked the room of leaders to write down and answer two questions. Think about this. What are you feeling and thinking about Ben and his choice? If this situation was happening in your life or an area of responsibility, what would you do next? So you can imagine what people's thinking in this room. I'm going somewhere tonight. You just stay with me, okay? As I gave the leaders a few minutes to write down their response, I scanned the audience, wondering what was going on in the hearts and minds of these men and women. Certain individuals stood out to me. I couldn't resist forming hunches about some of the reactions that were likely experiencing based on what I knew of their stories. The first person I noticed was Chuck, who had I'd only just met a few hours earlier during lunch. Chuck had told me that this was his first visit to Bethel. His new pastor had been introducing revival culture at their conservative evangelical church in the Midwest and had brought Chuck and a handful of other volunteer leaders to this conference to experience firsthand what he had been guiding them towards. Chuck had also mentioned to me that they had an 18-year-old daughter who was considering applying for the school of ministry 
after she graduated from high school. By the look on his clenched jaw and narrowed eyes, I suspected that the the dominant emotion Chuck was experiencing in reaction to Ben's story was anger. I'd seen that look many times. It was the look of a man thinking something like that. If some pastor seduced my daughter, I would hunt him down and shoot him. How could someone in a trusted position of power take advantage of someone like that? I hope they made an example of him. He certainly should never be allowed in any kind of church leadership position again. Let me say here, as I sit here tonight at this table, Don and Steve will know this, that I got 20 years under my belt. I can't tell you the leaders that I've seen ground up in a system. Leaders that had pure hearts to run after God, that loved to preach the gospel, that loved God. I remember when I was 22 years old, no, 24, that I was called on the phone to a leader that I had respected greatly and deeply, was called and told me that he had fallen. Let me say this. Why are you going over this? Well, I've just got to follow the heart of the Lord where I've been at. You know what I'm saying? That's all I can do. Now, I could get up here and preach on revival, and we can all book and shout and all of that kind of stuff. But I'm trying to go against something that is in this whole area that permeates. So think about this, Jamie. We had this deal that we set up that we called. And, and Steve, actually, when he first come back, he said, let's don't stand up and tell anybody else that somebody's on a sabbatical. Let's don't say they're on a sabbatical because they need they need time away from God. Let's establish this tonight. Whether you're a leader, whether you're a preacher, whether you're worship, whatever you are, you are human. You are body, soul, and spirit. You can have the strongest spirit man in this room, but if you neglect your body, it's a matter of time. Train wreck is coming in your life. The greatest place that I can pastor is not in this room. It's at my house. It is my wife and my three boys. That is my responsibility. I feel the Holy Ghost of heaven on that. Are you with me now? But because of the demands we place on leaders, we teach them to neglect their marriage, neglect their children, and at all costs make the church run. My job here is not to produce numbers in this church. My job is to grow you into something. Are you with me now? My job is to follow the Lord. Are you with me? Every day. So what I felt like today is when I went to prayer this morning, I, I walked in at 8.30 and come out at 4. That don't mean a lot of time, okay? A lot of, I ain't in there just praying in tongues the whole time, okay? But one of the things that I felt like the Lord showed me is where, I don't know where this comes on us, but there, there comes a drive on us. There comes a drive on us to be something or to, you know what I'm saying? Let me just say this. We've got to learn how to rest in the fact that our job is not to be on, be on somewhere on the internet or make it on TBN or Daystar. Our job is to become like our elder brother, Jesus. That is the prize that we're after in this room. Our prize is not that a limo would pull up there, a buttload of finances come through the door. Oh, our job is to become like our elder brother. The greatest compliment I got tonight was Tay-Tay coming in my office, a six-year-old little boy that rides the van to this church. He dressed up tonight as a pastor for Halloween. Come on, somebody. That's what he wants to be. That is the greatest compliment we could receive in this church, friend. My God. So think about this. See, why are you saying this? Because we can't invade the areas of darkness in our community because the church is afraid of sin. The church is afraid of other people's lifestyle that don't look like the conservative white evangelical church. We're afraid of that. We have got to learn that the power of righteousness on our life will overtake the darkness if we just be something. Not no fake Christianese, man. Come on, somebody. Just be something. Be authentic. Paul said, I'll show you a more excellent way, which is love. The next person who caught my eye was Alexandra, a lay leader at a church in Idaho. I met her several months earlier at another Bethel conference. And on that occasion, her glowing face and ecstatic description of what she had been experiencing were filled with starry-eyed hope that she discovered a church that as far as she could tell was pretty close to perfect. Now her face had fallen 
into lines of disappointment. I could almost hear her thinking, wow, I thought this, this was a place where people really lived out the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. I thought the leaders here had it more together. A pastor having an affair with his intern. How could he be living in the middle of revival and mess up like that? At the table next to Alexandra sat a group of leaders from Singapore. My eyes zeroed in on Lee, a leader I'd spent a fair amount of time with on several ministry trips to Asia. And all our conversations about the kinds of leadership challenges he faced in his culture, sexual misconduct had not come up as a major issue and was apparently rarely heard of among their Christian leaders. The stiff, serious look on Lee's face suggested that he was feeling righteous indignation that a minister of the gospel would behave in such a shameful manner. Based on what I understood of his culture, I knew he would probably advocate strict punishment to send the message to everyone that such behavior was deplorable for anyone, especially a pastor. You got to tell you, you going to stay with me right here? Remember what we said, love has not been perfected in our hearts if the fear of punishment still exists. Love has not been made perfect in our hearts if the fear of punishment still exists. At the back of the room, I spotted my friend Walter, a 50-year-old businessman, a lifelong believer from Tulsa, Oklahoma. After the opening session of the conference the previous day, we'd spent some time catching up together, and Walter had shared that he had just been through a very tough betrayal. He had recently discovered that his brother-in-law, who had who he'd hired two years after he was fired from, the, from, the, from another job, was claiming false expenses and writing company checks to himself. Walter hadn't, passed, hadn't pressed charges. But he had told his brother-in-law that it was time for him to find another job. It broke my heart, he told me, but I had to let him face the consequences of his behavior. My only hope is that he learns his lesson and never hurts people like this again. I could easily imagine Walter, what Walter would think something similar should be done in Ben's case. Also sitting near the back was a longtime ministry acquaintance, Carolyn. Her face covered with anxiety that I knew had had less to do with Ben's story than with the situation in her personal life. In the years I'd known Carolyn, her and her husband, Ken, they'd always been a model Christian family, raising their three beautiful daughters in the church where Carolyn had worked as a bookkeeper for 11 years. The girls were very involved in youth group, and Ken was on the board of elders. But now something was threatening to turn their world upside down. At lunch the day before, Carolyn had pulled my wife Sherry aside and confided that just that week she and Ken had learned that their middle daughter, who was barely 15, was pregnant. She hadn't yet told their pastor the news and asked Sherry for advice on what to do. She was convinced that when the leadership, listen to this, of the congregation knew how she had failed, she had failed as a parent, they would want to remove her from her role in the church administration. So she wouldn't reflect poorly on the senior pastor. Based on her expression, I suspected that hearing Ben's story could only be aggravated, be aggravating the fear of punishment she was currently dealing with. Now let me say this. I'm 40 years old. I got three boys. One's 15, fit to be 16 Christmas Day. What I found to be true is I cannot control that 16-year-old. Listen, what we fear, we will try to control. Listen to me. What we fear, we will try to control. So one of the greatest struggles, I'm just being honest with family right here because we're all real people in this room. One of my greatest struggles is learning how to trust the Lord that he's going to watch over him outside of my sight. Now I asked him, I said, son, why, you know, why do you believe that your father's a man of God? Number one, he says, what I see in the house, so I appreciate that. But I said, well, tell me more. No, don't, don't tell me because I stand up here and preach. That does not identify me as a man of God. That just means I have a gift from God. Hello. But I remember Steve coming and meeting me one afternoon. And one thing he told Kathy and I, 
is he said, your children, listen to me, you can raise your children in the best environment. Their children still going to make choices, right? But I'm telling you in a culture that we live in in the South, this is very true what he just wrote in this book. Because two parents had a daughter that got pregnant. She will be fired from that church, I can tell you right now, if that happens anywhere in anywhere in the South where I've been at. She's going to be fired and the husband's going to be let go of as an elder. And it didn't matter what his pursuit of God was or what. It was because of poor decision that his daughter made. How many knows that a decision you make in life does not define who you are? Come on, y'all. This is what I pinned down. There's a scripture in my own personal time with God. There's a scripture in Daniel 3.27, and it talks about the three Hebrew boys that were thrown into the fire. And it says they came out from the fire, and it says that, there was, that their hair was not singed. Their trousers, the NSV says this, that, that their trousers was not burned. And it says there was not the smell of smoke even upon them. Most people do not approach trials in that way. Most of the time when trials comes in life, years later people still smell like what they went through 10 years ago. If you went through a divorce 10 years ago, that was 10 years ago. Come on, somebody. It's time to walk in the grace of God. Pick up where you're at right now. Come on, somebody. If you got pregnant out of wedlock five years ago, two years ago, or yesterday, his mercy is new every day. Has anybody read the book in this room? Psalms 136, his mercy mercy endures forever. Verse 2, his mercy endures forever. Verse 3, his mercy endures forever. God is a God of justice, but he always leans on the scales on the side of mercy. We've got to get this in our heart. If not, we're going to continue to judge. We're going to continue to look at people because they don't look like us and act like us. When Jesus addressed in John 10 and 10, when he said the thief cometh but the kill steal and destroy, the church has preached that for years. I've heard upteen thousand sermons on the thief come to kill, steal, and destroy about that being the devil. Jesus was not talking about the devil when he addressed that in John chapter 10. It goes back to John chapter 9 with the healing of the blind boy. And what Jesus was addressing in John chapter 10 was the difference between a hireling and a shepherd. He said the hireling comes in, come on somebody, looking out for his own interest. He's going to preach the things that will tickle you. He is the one that is killing, stealing, and destroying. But the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's in it for the long path. All right. The last person who caught my eye was a pastor friend of mine, Bruce, who was sitting at a table with three new members of his elder team. Three young boys had their heads together at the table and were showing one another what they had written down on their papers. Bruce, however, was turned away from them and seemed to be avoiding eye contact. He looked uncomfortable. In 10 plus years of connecting and ministering together in various events, Bruce and I had shared enough of our stories for me to know that he had struggled with a porn problem in the past. Based on some of the stressful situations I knew, he was currently dealing with his congregation. I couldn't help but wonder if Bruce was struggling in that area again. If so, it would explain why hearing about a pastor being caught and exposed had him shifting in his seat. Real story. Young leader at a church during a worship set goes to the pastor broken and says, I'm struggling with porn, and I can't seem to beat it. Monday morning, he was fired from the church. See, every righteous, boy, I'm, 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 mm. I about want to put some language out there, get me some emails. See, the righteous folks would stand up and clap, but let me tell you something, all of heaven weeped at that decision. Because what you got to understand, when you when all, all a person can do is be honest about where they're at. See, this is why we can't walk in freedom in the church. When the Bible says worship him in spirit and in truth, it means, it, it means worship him in the reality of where you're at. 
Be honest about where you at. Know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's not just the truth of God's word. Know the truth about where we're at. Come on somebody. And we come to church with all of our problems and all of our mess and we walk in the door. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm doing great. Meanwhile my marriage is crumbling. Meanwhile I can't pay my bills. All of this stuff is going on. But yet we raise our hands like we got it all together. We've hid nothing from heaven. Come on, y'all. If you take a person that is gifted, whether it be, let's just use Matt, if his gifting or Amanda, whoever, if their gifting is in a certain area and you remove them from that area because it appeases you, why do we, put, why do we take people and set them down for six months? Because we got to appease people in the room. Why do you put them in a penalty box? Man, people, we downsizing the church tonight. Nobody, nobody's confessed any sin, by the way, okay? <laughs> Somebody like, well, who did something? Somebody did something. He's, he's, he's laying the groundwork. He's laying the groundwork. Huh? But let me tell you something. We're going to have to learn how to overcome some hurdles as a church if you're going to be a real culture. I remember that Jensen Franklin used to release a top 10. I bought the top 10 every year. And in 1999, he had a series called the Top 10. And one of those series was a cassette tape called Drop the Rock. And he preaches from the lady in John chapter 8, come on, who was caught in adultery. Jesus set the standard. Listen, he wasn't afraid of that. The Pharisees was afraid of that. He pointed out their own hearts. Those of you without sin cast the first stone. Hello. And what we got to understand the church really loves judgment. But what you got to understand, the same measure that you judge someone, you just pulled the measure and tape out for your own life for God to reach back and judge you the same way. It was Jimmy Swagger who said on national television, glory to God, God ain't called me to build no, God ain't called me to build no amusement park. And he, and he blasted Jim Baker. It was only just a few short while when he judged him publicly that God pulled the covers off of his own life. Come on, somebody. The Bible says it like this when Jesus said, how are you going to get, how are you trying to get the speck out of your brother eye when the beaming pole is in your own eye. Let's just come to the grips tonight that all of us has got issues. All of us need the grace and the mercy of God and none of us is better than the drunkard that ain't in this building tonight. Come on somebody. He just needs to know somebody loves him right where he's at. Brendan Manning writes in that book called Ruthless Trust. I wish you would get it. My God, it's amazing. I cried reading the whole book. Brendan Man writes in that book, he says, why don't you judge? Why don't you judge the single mother who's just trying to make it? How about judge, how about judge the lady who just buried a child? And then he writes this, man. He said, how about better yet judge me? This is a preacher that's traveled all over the world. Better yet, why don't you judge me as I sit here on such and such street in New Orleans? stinking from my own body odor and urinating on my own self and my clothes because I laid here drunk. But see, we would fold his stuff up. Well, I, I can't believe you're going to read his book if he just confessed to be sitting there laid there drunk. Had somebody come by to help him and said, would you like me to take you to detox? He said, no, don't take me to detox. I got $5 left. And he made his way at 12 o'clock at night to the convenience store and bought the smallest bottle of vodka he could buy for $5 and he comes back and he passes out. And the next morning he wakes up and someone had took him to detox because he struggled with alcoholism. People's got struggles all over this room, friend. If we're going to be a culture that's a real family, we got to learn how to... I, you said you look past somebody's sin? No, no, listen here. If I see, if I know there's known sin in his life, I'm coming to see him and I'm going to confront him about it. But let me tell you what we've done in the past is what we love when someone we hear that someone's messed up. Ted Hager said it is. How many remember Ted Hager? Ted Hager, Colorado Springs. He had one of the largest churches in this nation. And Ted Hager messed up, and he got out there, and he got out there and some left, left. I mean, he got out there a little bit, okay? I know of three prophetic voices that went and seen Ted Hager that God tried to deal with Ted inside, outside, where it didn't come out in front of the, everybody. You know what I'm saying? But Ted wouldn't get it right. Here's the main thing that I believe was on. He was tired of that pressure cooker called ministry. He wanted out. He wanted out. He was tired of it. 
Listen, I don't care how much money you make as a preacher. If you're not called by God, it will kill you. Just like being an electrician. If you ain't gifted by God to do it, it'll kill you. Okay, so I'm not putting more weight on ministry than I am an electrician. Anyhow, he didn't. He, he, he didn't. And, and, he, and he failed. When he failed, when he failed, there was a shockwave that went through the church. And the most, I mean, unbelievable stuff happened to his family. Yeah, he failed. But he also built one of the greatest edifices that stand in this nation. And this is what he said when he come back. He said, when the church gets a real chance to show the love of God, we always blow it. When we show them what restoration is supposed to look like, we always blow it. Now let me just say this right here while I'm in and I'm going to get back and read the book. When God restores something, He does not restore you the way you were. That's what I'm talking about. Restoration, He always updates it to the current state. And it's always better than where He left. Come on. If you got a 1955 Bel Air, you're not running with drum brakes on it anymore. You got disc brakes on it. You got a Bluetooth radio, not no 8-track. I didn't even have 8-track 55 then. <laughs> you just had to hum. AM. All right. Now let's look at this. All right. Once everyone had finished writing, I said, so at this point in the conversation, I have Ben's confession. In most cases, that's where the conversation stops. That's where we start to tell someone who has broken one of the sacred rules in the community. What's going to happen next? The message we send is they have no more choices to be made in this process. But from my perspective, Ben still had a choice to make. The most important choice of all, would he repent or not? Have you ever noticed David, the beloved David, the man after God's own heart? Have you ever read his story in the Bible? I mean, David didn't just have an affair. Hello. He didn't just have an affair. He did everything he could to cover it up. Not only did that, when he brought, when he brought Uriah, that's right, right? Yeah, help me. Holy Ghost, teach the Bible in here. Don't even know it. When he brought Uriah back from the front line of battle, he got to cover himself up. So he has Bathsheba go to Victoria's Secret. Come on. Be ready when he comes off the front line. Uriah don't go in the house. He said, look at his honor towards God and the king. He doesn't go in the house and lay with her. So David realizes that he ain't going in the house with her. So he said, calls the, the front men, says, hey, put Uriah on the front line, and when the battle gets hot, withdraw from him. Had him killed. What set David different from Saul, who got the kingdom stripped from him, who did not commit adultery. All he did was just didn't do everything God told him to do. When he went out and captured the king, he saved the, he saved the choice for himself. Come on. When he come back into town, Samuel said, what, what is this I hear, the bleeding of the sheep? He said, well, you know, I figured we would just, we're going to honor God and we'll, we'll keep the best that they have and bring them back for the house of God. That ain't what God said. God said, kill them all. There's so much I can preach in there. If you read how, how Saul dies, it was an Amicali who put the sword in him whom God told him to kill. But listen, so now Samuel confronts Saul. He's confronting him for his sin and his issue. This is how Samuel, this is how Saul re responds to Samuel. Will you just walk with me in front of the people? Now, Samuel, make me look good in front of the people. So now David's got a sin in his life. And God raised up a man by the name of Nathan to go see David. And I love 2 Samuel 12 where, where, where the rebuke comes to David. And he tells David this story. There was a man, there was a rich man who had all this stuff. And there was a poor man who had one little lamb. 
And the rich man took the lamb for himself. David looks at Nathan and he said, whoever this man is, he shall surely die. Did he not say that? He shall surely die. Nathan looks back at him and says, you are the man. I love this. Now he starts talking about the mercy of God. Now he's out. You with me? But if you look in Psalms 51, what was David's cry to God? God, do not remove your spirit from me. This is the most important thing in my life. His heart was, God, it is me. I am the man. You found him. I've turned from my ways. Come on, somebody. That is the heart of the believer. That is a person that is in repentance. Now, let me say this. All right, let's, let's keep reading. Let me go on right here. I ain't even going to get none of this right here. All right, so, all right. Let me see where was that. I just lost my place here. All right. All right. Once everyone finished writing, I said, so at this point in the conversation, I have Ben's confession. In most cases, that's where the uh, conversation stops. That's where we start to tell someone who has broken one of the sacred rules of the community what is going to happen next. The message we send is that they have no more choices to be made in this process. But from my point perspective, Ben still had one choice to make, the most important choice of all, would he repent or not? This time, I didn't see any nods in the audience. Many, including Chuck, Walter, looked in as if to say, why, why would that matter? What does it matter if he repents or not? Others look confused and uncertainly, seeming unsure of what I meant by, by repent. The first way, uh, the, the, first, the first way for, me to de- for, for me to determine whether Ben was repented, I continued, was to find out if he was willing to really look at the mess he had made. He had admitted to the behavior, but that was only part of the picture. To repent, he needed to see the whole problem, the internal core beliefs and motives that they had produced the behavior and all of, its, all of its effects. How many knows what you do? It's not, it's not, what concerns me is not what you do. It ain't what you do, it's why you do what you do. That's the problem. Alcohol, what, whatever it is, what, porn, drugs, whatever it is, is putting Band-Aid on a symptom. And if you attack the alcohol, you're never going to do anything. Come on, somebody. It's like trying to lose weight. You're never going to lose weight by focusing on trying to lose weight. You start applying principles in your life every day. Every day. And eventually, way to come on. All right. Look, I'm going to see if he's going to look at his mess. Uh, to repent, he needed to see the whole problem. The internal core beliefs and motives that had pro- produced the behavior and all of its effects. I went on to describe to, to describe the next stage of our conversation with Ben, which started with me asking him, so what happened, Ben? How would you let something like this, how, how could you let something like this into your life? Now, Ben looks of, of, of post-confession shock had already been replaced by deep sighs and tears and fear and guilt and remorse. I was pretty sure he didn't need to be convinced he had a problem. He knew he was, he was in the biggest trouble of his life. But instead of running out of the room, he began to search with us for the source of where things had gone wrong with him. Gone wrong for him and why? After, the piercing, toge- after pe- piecing together the events, the decisions, and relation dynamics that had, had led to the affair, Ben saw the reality of life he had been living. Not only had he been disconnected from his wife for years, he had, almost, he had been almost completely isolated from everyone around him. The husband, father, leader, and man he presented was a front. Nobody really knew, knew him or saw what was going on behind the curtain. Let me tell you this. Listen to this. The devil loves darkness. He loves darkness. If you get a leader and you cut the light on to whatever's going on in your life, once you turn the light on, it's gone. Can I get some help up in here? Has anybody ever been delivered from something besides me up in this place? Once you cut the... Hey, it ain't fun going to get somebody and being vulnerable. Now, you don't go get... Sister Blabbermouth, you get a leader. 
someone you can trust. And this is going on in my life right now. I need your help. Once honesty comes, once the light comes on, it's already defeated. Now all you got to do is walk out of the darkness. The chains are broken when we cut the light on. But because of this struggle in this leader's life, it caused him to live in isolation. Everything he did was a front. How many people frequent our buildings every Sunday that are putting up a big facade, a veneer, a front? Mm. When I asked Ben what was driving these patterns of disconnection, isolation, and hiding in his life, took him several minutes of hard thinking to identify the truth. Finally, he came out with, I'm afraid of being seen and known because I'm afraid of doing something wrong and being punished. Okay, I said, let's go after that. Where do you think that fear is coming from? Ben mentioned a few getting into trouble scenarios from his childhood. But we hit pay dirt when he made another confession. This wasn't his first affair. He had committed adultery once 12 years before when he and Heather were newly married and expecting their first child. At that time, he had been on staff at a small church. When the truth came out, he had gone through a church discipline process. First, he had to be required to go before the church congregation and confess what he had done. Let me just say this. I've been a part of this scenario. I've rode this horse about five times. Leader messes up. All right, here's what we're going to do. We've done met in the back room like a posse. You know what I'm saying? So we prayed him out. Come on, man. He's like walking the green mile. Prayed him out. Set him in the front. Now I need you to go up in front of the church and confess everything you did. Man, if half 99.9% of the people are looking for details. Mm-hmm. Now let me ask you something. Let me ask you this right here. Out of everyone I've seen, and I can bring the stack in here and show you, not one is in ministry today. Not one is in church today. Not one has their family today. So do you think, do you think that it's the individual or do you think the process we were trying to use was jacked up? Now let me ask you something. If I got a child in here that's 18 months, Got an explosive diaper on. I mean, it's running out everywhere. Would you rather me bring it and drag that child through every chair right here? Right here trying to... Or would you rather me scoop him up in a blanket and take him in here in the bathroom and deal with the situation? Hello? Hi. True story. Standing in the city one night, a pastor has messed up. He's had an affair. I'm standing in this city with three other leaders to deal with this situation. I'm sitting on the front row about to throw up. I left one meeting one night that I did vomit on the side of the road after a leader fell. That leader's in prison today, and he will die if God don't help him to get out. For child molestation. I've seen some horrible stuff. But I've also seen some precious people inside of a local body. If something happens with a child or and they just get ground up in, in this religious bull instead of people walking in authentic love trying to restore them. How does the Bible say that we restore? Those that are strong go bear up the weak one. Had a young guy, matter knows who this is, a childhood friend of mine, came to me. He would come on Wednesday nights. He'd be, he'd be so daggum high that, I mean, he was up in the third round. Let me just say that. From high. And finally, he just made me mad one night. I grabbed him outside the door, and I mean, I put him to the wall with my, with my hand. So said, man, I can't believe he said this pastor church. He's a childhood friend of mine, okay? I said, man, don't you ever disrespect me. Come back up in here high, listen to me preach. 
He said, well, I love to hear you preach if I'm high or not. <laughs> I cried all the way home. And I called him the next morning. I said, man, listen here. I don't care if you high, stoned, or drunk. You come hear me preach the gospel. Two months later, his mama called me at 5 o'clock in the morning. Said he was unconscious in the bed and couldn't get up. I went, to, I went to his house that morning. had to take a day of vacation. I said, you going to get some help today? He said, no, I ain't going. I said, listen, you going. This is it. This is it. You going. And I did pick him up. And I did throw him in the front seat of my truck. And I drove him. We got to the place. And with this hospital agreed to take us to dry him out. Because of all the stuff he was on. And we might we wound up accidentally telling them where we were from. When told them where we would where we told them where we was from to keep us out. I called every hospital to help me. No one would help me. I called one last place. I said, "Don't you ever say that you want to help somebody? You want to stop the drug problem in this country, and you're not willing to help anybody." I said, "We got real money, man. We ain't asked for nothing for free." So finally, through some help. I finally got him at a hospital. Got him in there. He realized he had to stay for six months. Every situation came up. Come on. Every, I, I thought it was for three days. I mean, <laughs> huh? No, it was a six-month commitment. Every Saturday, I drove four hours to see him. And today, he's married with two children. And in eight years, he ain't touched no oxycodone, and he's free. Free. I feel the Holy Ghost in this room. He's free. But let me tell you something. When I had him sitting in my church, Matt, tell him, tell him if I'm telling a lie right here. Leaders would call me and say, I cannot believe you let him sit in your church that way. It's the only thing that's going to help him, friend. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have got, we've got to get past this issue that we're afraid. We're afraid. What are you going to do if, if the homosexuals going to come in your church? The gospel don't change. I'm not changing a thing. What are you going to do if the, if the Muslims come in there? Man, people, people run and hide and lock, close the house down when Jehovah's Witness pull up in the yard. Man, I'd come on in. You want a cup of coffee? Let's talk. Let's talk about some theological questions here. You can go to John chapter 1 and dispel everything they got. Just go to John chapter 1, reverse 1, then they got to bring somebody back bigger on the scale. Come on. You remember that? Remember when they came to Pastor Dale's house, he was laying hands on the dog out there, and they just saw that, they left in. This place is crazy. Huh? He had a dog that was sick. He believed in God, go heal the dog. They were even praying for Remember that? He was praying for the dog. Him and Austin, I thought, or Justin, was laying hands on the dog, speaking life into the dog. And Jehovah's Witness come up. They had done brought the big guy from the headquarters. He done dismantled everything the others would believe. Come on, somebody. What are you afraid of? The power of God. The same spirit. I said the exact same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. It shall also quicken your mortal body. The God of, he's in you. Oh man. Can we go 10 minutes right here? I know I've taught an hour, but I mean, I could really go by five hours now if you don't know the truth, but I'm gonna calm it down. I used to sit there past the day, I'd be like, how in the world he preached two hours? He trained us to preach long-winded, didn't he, Steve? <laughs> All right. That's right here. So, that's right. Hey, I found this out today over, over something that I've been studying on. And I found, you know that a few years ago, God's trying to work on me and help me because I've, I've just been through a lot in my life. And the reason why I'm teaching you, I'm teaching about my own failures in my own life. But one of the th things that I, I found out, you know what the most honorable, said this, is, this came from Ray Hughes. He said that one of the most honorable gifts that you can give a person 
is a pen. When you give a pen to someone, it tells them, I value what you have to say. What you have to say is worthy to be pinned down. And so this pen I hold in my hand is pretty bad at the bone. I mean, I got to brag on it. I mean, it is $1,400. It was given to me as a gift. <laughs> that's a real pearl crushing in. That's real gold hanging in the hand. Don't steal it. You know what I'm saying? If we catch you with it, we will gut you like a fish. Put you in the kingdom. I'm serious right now. We will do your funeral right here and honor you. <laughs> but I was reading that, and I got this almost two years ago. And I just felt like the Lord said, Son, you not believed what you've had to say is worthy to be pinned down. Because if you look at my journal, you'll see it's got about six months of gap, six months of gap, six months of gap. But I said, you know what? I'm going to pin every day. I'm going to pin every day because what you got to say is worthy to be heard. All right. We've got to learn how to steward thought. All right. I got I to gotta go right here. Terry's praying right now. Lord, Pastor, let him go now. We've got to get these kids out of here. <laughs> All right. So Ben goes through this process at his first church. They removed him from his pastoral job. But they said, hey, we're still going to keep you on staff. But now you're going to be the custodian. Because we're going to feel real good about how we punish you, buddy. We're going to feel real good at the end of the day when we get through you being the custodian. You've done enough punishment for your crime. Then we're going to see if the gift's still in you. going to go on. He said, when we hired Ben, we knew nothing about this episode in his life. So we never thought to set up any accountability for him or ask good questions like, is having a young lady living in your house a good idea or not? Hello. Now, I mean, Miss Donna, if you go up there and you see five-foot blonde, 20 years old as my nanny, then you need to cry out. You need to call Steve and say, Steve, I won't go out and talk to him. Hello. Come on, for you ladies. I mean, you can't have Fabio out there cutting your grass. Come on. Hello. <laughs> you with me? You hire big, bald-headed people. I tell her, Catherine, there ain't nobody on the outlook for big, bald-headed people. I'm safe. Are you safe in that area? <laughs> Come on now, listen. Uh, <laughs> listen, when we hired Ben, we knew nothing about his episode. You know, whether it was a good idea or not. And so the road had left, had the road had been left wide open for Ben's fear of punishment to drive him into, realiz into realizing that the very thing he was afraid of, it was simply a matter of time before the mis for the misery of unresolved pain in his marriage and hiddenness from people around him became greater than his fear of being caught and punished. And he acted out in an illegitimate way to find connection, just like he had done 12 years before. Once I sensed that Ben was, saw the internal picture of his mess, I shifted my questions to the external picture. I wanted him to understand what was at stake here. This wasn't just about his marriage, his job, or even Bethel Church and the ministry school. It wasn't just about violating God's commandments. It was about a family, a family that we both belong to and we were responsible to protect. Tell me, who is, an, who is affected by this decision, I asked. One by one being named the people he had hurt with his betrayal. Heather, their children, their parents, extended family, his intern, his staff, um, other revival group pastors and church leadership, his revival group, all the past, all the first-year students, the second-year students, too, especially those who had been in his revival group the previous year. As the size of the mess came into the staggering focus, Ben began to sob with grief. Ben's tears were certainly appropriate, and his brokenness seemed real. He had been willing to dig deep, answer my questions, and uncover the anatomy of his mess in full. Now he appeared to be experiencing the godly sorrow leading to repentance. But his answer to my final question would prove what he was really, what was really in his heart. So, Ben, what are you going to do? 
See, when we have a mess that comes up in the house of God, it's not what I'm going to do. It's not what Steve's going to do or Cleve as an elder in this church is what he's going to do to you. It's what you're going to do. What are you going to do? Do you take ownership of it? See, repentance is taking ownership of it. Hey, that was me, man. I blew it. Now, you pull out, not me, not leadership, you pull out the mop, you pull out the broom, and you start cleaning the mess up. And what do we do as a family? We forgive. When you forgive someone, you cannot hold them to that standard any longer. If you forgive someone in your marriage and then next week you pull that back out your slate, it's a matter of time for you going to end up in my office or somebody's office, but you've got problems. When you forgive someone, you release them of the punishment they think they, that you think they deserve. And you restore the standard. So one by one, I mean, so Ben, what are you going to do? Ben sat there for a moment, overwhelmed in the wake of emotional tsunami. that had just rolled through him. I don't know, he said at last. I don't know that I... I know that I need to try to clean up my mess, but I have no idea how. I feel pretty sure that I've just lost every everything important in my life. Well, I can tell you that we will we will be behind you cleaning up your mess. I responded. I can tell you whatever else we'll we'll decide or what will happen, but I have seen situations like this turn around. It's going to work out better than you think. Ben was repentant, I said to the room of leaders, and that changed everything. Hold up now. Golly, I wish I had time. Listen, hold up now. You mean to tell me that he's repented? Now you letting him go? Come on, that ain't how we done it in the church. Nine months at least on this type of problem. Steve, come on, tell him the standard. Nine months, he's got to sit down, clean the trash, Go on a sabbatical. Now listen to this. This is Danny standing on the stage at this conference. Ben was repented, I said to the room of leaders, and that changed everything. But instead of you telling you what happened next, I want to invite, man, I love this. I pray to God we have thousands upon thousands of thousands of restoration stories all across this land. Come on, y'all. Listen, he says, so listen here. Instead of me telling you the rest of the story, he invites Ben and Heather to come out on the stage. And this is what they say. In unison, everyone whipped around and followed Ben and Heather as they entered the room and made their way hand in hand up the aisles to the front. When they reached me, I handed Ben the microphone. So what was I going to do? Ben began without preamble. Like Danny said, I felt like my life was over and I had one option to clean up my mess as best as I could with every person I had betrayed. I had no idea how to do that or how it would pan out. I hadn't seen it mapped out in church and I hadn't seen a success story except maybe David in the Bible. But I discussed some ideas with Dan and Danny and they agreed to be a part of my support and accountability through the process. Then I began meeting with people, starting with Heather. He goes through and he fixes everything. For an entire year, Ben's life was fully focused on waking and walking out this repentance. Personal, marriage, family, counseling became a weekly part of life, life for him, Heather, and their kids. As a couple, Ben and Heather slogged through the process of uncovering and addressing the issues that had been contributing to the chronic disconnection in their marriage from the beginning. There was much more to confess, forgive, and unravel than either of them had known. And yet even when it was excruciating, they courageously moved toward one another and continued learning how to build a level of emotional honesty, trust, and connection they never had before. They also worked hard to bring their kids into this new relational culture. During that season, Ben Heather navigated inter, uh, uh, interacting with Ben's former intern who had moved out of their home immediately after bringing the affair to light but remained in the church community. She and the family both had to decide how to walk out forgiveness and new relational boundaries. As he had promised, Ben talked with every single person who reached out by phone, email, or in person and talked with him by the end of the year that numbered well over 100 people. He also said faithfully at, sat faithfully at his desk at the school every day. Every day, grading homework, allowing those who he used to lead from the platform to see him serve them in a role he had chosen while he cleaned up his mess. The message was clear. He wasn't running away from his mess, and he wasn't acting like things were cleaned up before they were. 
At the end of the year, Ben and Heather agreed to update the ministry school students on the progress of their journey of healing. Their children joined them on the platform. Ben described the steps he had taken to build a new lifestyle of living in light and the incredible freedom and healing he was experiencing as a result. Heather shared about her own process of forgiveness and the adjustments she had chosen to make to build a new and better connection with Ben. They gave examples of how their children were were becoming powerful and expressing their feelings and needs and even holding them accountable as a couple for the relational standards that they had agreed to honor as a family. Though there was still more ground to cover on their healing journey, they acknowledged that love, hope, and joy were filling their lives and home like never before. The applause from the students at the end of Ben and Heather's testimony had been deafening. People were shouting, crying, hugging, punching the air as they celebrated the incredible victory. In the months that followed, many of them sought out Ben and Heather and other Bethel staff to let them know how it had impacted them to watch a leader walk out a journey of repentance and reconciliation like this. Most of them said they had never experienced anything like it. And, of course, that ending wasn't really an ending, but the beginning. Ben and Heather not only learning to walk in a lifestyle of freedom and emotional honesty, accountability, and connection, but gaining the authority to equip others to do the same. When Ben eventually returned to a personal, to a pastoral role in the school, a decision he made in full accord with the church leadership, he was a very different leader. He brought a culture of living in the light to his students, modeling healthy vulnerability by sharing his story teaching them how to be open with trusted friends and leaders about where they are struggling and showing them what it means to be a safe place for others to do the same. And he ends this with this, that at the end of that story, he says this, now the questions of how you would handle him, do they look different after you heard God redemptive story in their life? Church, let me tell you something. We're all in this room a redemptive story. All of us has got a past. Nobody would want our life. I sure wouldn't want my whole life played on that video screen up there. But God is totally in love with us. Now let me tell you this. We've heard this statement said in the church that God loves us in spite of our sin and brokenness. Let me tell you this. God loves you with your sin and with your brokenness. As one writer put it this way, God made man in his image and then man turned around and made God in his image. God is not like us, friend. His ways are not like yours and his thoughts are so much higher than you. Aren't you glad he loves you that much? Aren't you glad that you sat in this room tonight totally unpunishable? Aren't you glad tonight that you stand in this room totally unpunishable? Aren't you glad tonight that you don't have to fear when you stand before God, if he's going to say, well done and faithful servant, he's going to look at you and say, enter in. Because the blood of his son was sufficient. Father, I thank you tonight for your grace and your mercy, your goodness. I thank you for your sweet presence in this room. Father, I thank you for the great ability that you have allowed me to stand here tonight. And Father, the thing that you're building in this city and in this community, and what goes on in this building, totally just amazing listen to this I was sitting with a leader come to visit me last Thursday and this is what he said he's been in this building two times he said you know what's funny is we were sitting in the parking lot he said look at that building <laughs> I was looking at the discolored tin and all on the top you know on the right he just said look at it he said man he said it blows my mind at the world that's beyond those doors that you walk in Oh, there's a world in here, friend, of another dimension. And our lives are being changed. Mickey Davis, you've been conformed into the image of Jesus. So am I. We on this journey together. We had to go hook the rope to you a few times, and we'll do it a thousand more times. And I expect you to hook the rope to me if I need it. Father, we love you tonight. Friend, I'm just telling you, it's time to just get it simple. Love God and love the people around you. That's the, that's the gospel. I leave with this. Havilah Cunnington, I told uh, Matt to send me this picture. She had on her Instagram, and this is what it said. Religion. Religion. I've messed up 
my dad is going to kill me. The gospel, I've messed up. I need to talk to my dad. Man, I wish I had time. Religion, I've messed up. My dad is going to kill me. The gospel, I've really messed up. I've got to go talk to my dad. Because dad's always there. Dad's always there. I said dad's always there. And when you holding all of that stuff, you think that you're going to get punished over, get killed over. Dad saying, get up here in my lab, son. Let's talk about it. I want to fix the problem while that's going on. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the crevices in your heart where you doubt me and you don't trust me. God's not a, and I even hate to say it like this because it's a slang term. God's not a, most people view of God is that God allows us and he puts us in this world and he shows us all this delightful stuff, but, it, but he'll only give it to us if, if, if we just obey him. But then at some point he's going to come and he's going to take it away from us because we did something wrong. God's not an Indian giver. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. When he called Peter, what, how did he demonstrate to Peter who he was? He said, cast the net out again. We've, cast, we've been fishing all night, but do it one more time. When they did it that time, they brought in enough that broke the nets and they needed other boats to come bring the harvest in. He said, Peter, this is who I am. This is how good I'm going to be to you. Peter falls down in that boat and repents and says, I'm a sinful man. Get up, Peter. I'm going to call you. Listen, you ain't. Get up, Simon. Broken reed. I'm going to call you the rock. Come on, before Dwayne Johnson, I'm going to call you the rock. And you're going to be a fisher of men. Father, I bless his people tonight. In the name of the Lord, I pray, Father, that we would go down tonight and sleep. We would rest in your goodness. We would wake up in your goodness. And, Father, you would perfect us in your love. You would drive all fear out of our hearts, perfecting us in your love. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. God bless you all. We'll see you here Sunday morning. We hope you enjoyed our message of the week. Thanks for joining us. Our passion at Cornerstone is our family atmosphere built on deep relationships. We want to connect with you. Please take a moment and download our app and connect with us on social media to stay updated with all things Cornerstone. We pray you have a wonderful week.